Good morning. If you would be taking your Bibles out and open them up, be spending quite a bit of time from them this morning, specifically focused in the Old Testament. In fact, if you wanted to be opened up to the book of Genesis, that's where we'll be beginning this morning. As you're taking your time to turn there, I want to thank you for your attendance with us this morning. I'm so thankful for those of you visiting with us. Uh, It is a great encouragement to see you with us. And if you would, if you haven't done so already, take a time to fill out one of those uh, visitor cards that are in the pew in front of you so we can have a a record of your attendance. Maybe send you a card. Thank you for your time with us. And also so we can get to know you a little bit better. How can we help you in your walk with Christ? That is our desire here at Lake Street is to strengthen one another, to press on towards the goal with one another and help one another grow stronger in the Lord. In 1905, I want to jump right into our lesson this morning. 1905, a woman by the name of Anna Jarvis lost her mother due to heart complications. Her mother's name was Ann Reeves Jarvis, and she was a peace activist that worked on, in caring for wounded soldiers on both sides of the American Civil War. So we're dating ourselves. We're going back a bit here. During this time... Surrounding the death of her mother, Anna wanted to do something to memorialize her. So in 1908, three years after her death, at the St. Andrew's Methodist Church, she held a service in memorial to her mom. And then she spent the next several years extensively lobbying and pressing for for a, a, a change that was denied repeatedly by Congress. But eventually... The work of the past nine years was completed, and in 1914, Woodrow Wilson, for the first time, signed a proclamation designating Mother's Day to be held on the second Sunday in May. And he designated this a national holiday. Now, funny enough, Anna spends the next several years protesting Mother's Day. She was even arrested for the protest that she led against Mother's Day and went on to state... The holiday has been exploited and the emphasis lost. People should appreciate and honor their mothers by expressing the love and the gratitude through handwritten letters and not purchasing pre-made ones or buying gifts. Now apparently, Miss Jarvis had never read the five love languages and didn't know that my wife Holly's love language is receiving gifts, especially chocolate. That is a brief history of what millions today think about in the U.S. when they think about Mother's Day. And maybe some of you are here today, and and that's that's what you're thinking about as well, this, this, this commercial holiday that it has become. But I want you to know the Bible is full of examples and, and dedications to biblical mothers and moms. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to examine some of these verses. But first, I want to ask the question, what is a mother? What is a mother? You may stop and think about that and think, well, that's very simple. That's a a female who has given birth to a child. That's a mother. If that's the case, I want you to pump the brakes for a moment and think, because that's not always true. Have you ever heard, have you ever heard someone say, that woman is like a mother to me? Have you ever heard someone say, that woman is like a grandmother to me? There was some great ordeal in their life, and through that ordeal, they became described as this way. Yes, it's true, a mother is a female with a child. But in these cases, these people were not people that had given birth to this person. They're not someone who had received parental rights granted to them by a government to to give them the claim of motherhood. 
So why is it that they could be viewed by this person as almost like a surrogate mother? That's because mothers are people who are selfless, loving, people who sacrifice time, jobs, hobbies, even dreams for people who oftentimes don't even know the extent of the sacrifice that's been made for them. They protect, they nurture, they nourish, they discipline, and they befriend. If you would not consider yourself a mother today, maybe you would look to yourself and say, well, I don't have any children, I'm not a mother. Maybe you would say, my children have grown, maybe even passed away, I'm not a mother. I want you to listen to the lessons that we learned today. Because there's much to learn from the examples of godly mothers. Because there are always children in this world, children in this very room, that are looking for someone to protect them, someone to nourish them, someone to befriend and love them. And so I want to look at three biblical examples. I'm sorry, I thought my clicker was on. I want to look at three biblical examples of what a mother is. And men and children, you listen too. Because these are great lessons for us to learn as well. Let's begin by looking at the first example, and that is going to be the example of Sarah. Now, we're going to talk about some people that maybe you think, yeah, that's a person I would talk about. We're going to talk about some people that maybe you would think, that's not a person that I would talk about. And we might even talk about someone that you would think, I don't even know who that person is. So I'm excited to get into this lesson. Beginning with Sarah, the first time we meet her, one, her name's not Sarah, is it? Her name is Sarai. And she is described in not one of the most wonderful ways. Listen to, to what is said in Genesis eleven twenty seven through 30 This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in the native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. The first time we meet Sarah, she's going by the name Sarai, and her identity has become that she is barren. She has no child. How hard this has to be. Her existence, her life, with this knowledge, is difficult. We have to see this, that this is something hard for a woman to experience, but not only is it hard for her, Abram, we're going to see deals with this. He has a difficulty with this fact. And you know that that has to just intensify that feeling for her. She has to look at this and struggle with this. But yet, with that knowledge, knowing that, listen to what God says in Genesis 12. The Lord had stated to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you notice that he said, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. And we have to immediately wonder, how? How is that going to happen, God? Because for that to happen, that implies children. Unless, unless somehow you're going to raise me up to conquer some country and I'm going to become their dictator and they're going to serve me as their king, how can I have a nation without kids? So something is going to have to happen if that is going to be the case. Sarah is barren. Sarah can't have kids. So what's going to change? And this is where, where this story really ends for a while. 
Not, not for us. We read through it. And we get to chapter 13 and 14. We just move along. That is not the case for Abram and Sarai. There is a period of time that passes. And it's a long period of time. Somewhere between 12 and 15 years before you get to chapter 15. And God is renewing this promise. And you have to think, this is, this is a large span of time for, for, for them to go knowing God promised us an, a family. He promised us this, this nation but where is it at? It hasn't happened. And in verse 1, God is actually comforting Abram, saying, do not be afraid. In chapter 15, verse 1, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And listen to Abram's response. Abram says, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. He's saying, God, you made this promise. Where's it at? I don't see it. I don't, I don't, I don't know where this promise is coming from. How is this going to happen? Are you going to give it to, to my, my, my relative? Are you going to give it to the old boy down in Damascus? Is he going to be somehow my heir? What are you talking about? I don't understand. And God says, no. It's going to come from you. It is going to be your child. God goes on to explain to him. He takes him out and says, look up into the heavens. See if you can count the stars. That's going to be the number of your descendants. He says, I'm giving it to you, Abram. You're the one that's going to have this family. It's going to come from your seed. And yet again, they wait. Another period of time passes. And in fact, it's another 10 years before you get to Genesis 18. And there in Genesis 18, you have the, the promise of, of, of this child to be born, a son and that they're going to call him Isaac. But this is a large period of time that's passed. Is what I want us to see. God's, God's promise that I'm going to raise up a nation, 15 years pass and he, he renews that promise saying, no, not just a nation. It's going to be from your, your lineage. It's going to be from your sign. And now another 10 years, so somewhere between 20 and 25 years from the original promise, and God comes to them and He's saying, it's going to be a boy. You're going to have a child It's going to be a boy. And you have to think about what kind of people these are at this point. This is not the same couple that received that promise as they were told to leave the, the land of Ur. As they were told to leave uh, Haran and go into the land of promise. This is people that are 25 years older. This is people who have experienced terrible, terrible things. They've, they've went into to, uh, to lands and almost been separated by a king. They've witnessed the, this split of their, their little family unit with Lot going a different direction. They, they've done all of these things that have happened. They're battle-hardened at this point. They, they've had to go in and do some fighting. And they're old. And God comes back and He says, no, it's going to be a child. And they're going, God, you missed your window. Okay, it was kind of unbelievable 25 years ago. But today... How is this going to happen? This is unbelievable that this could possibly happen. And yet, in chapter 21, starting in verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age. Different direction. They, they've done all of these things that have happened. They're battle-hardened at this point. They, they've had to go in and do some fighting. And they're old. And God comes back and He says, no, it's going to be a child. 
And they're going, God, you missed your window. Okay, it was kind of unbelievable 25 years ago, but today, how is this going to happen? This is unbelievable that this could possibly happen. And yet, in chapter 21, starting in verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age, and at the set time of which God had spoken to him, and Abram called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old, and his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, for I have borne him a son in his old age? I want you to notice something in verse 3. Verse 3 is telling us a change happened. A change happened in their lives. It's important for us to see that the, in, the, the woman that we were introduced to, Sarai the barren, has changed to Sarah the bearer. And she is a beautiful example of patience in this time. Not taking her eyes off of the promise. Something like 20 to 25 years of, of waiting for this promise to come true, but finally God changes her, and that promise is fulfilled. Now, I know 100%, I know full well, Sarah's not winning any awards for good conduct during that time. But she is the example of faithful patience. Thus the Hebrew writer writes in, 11, in Hebrews 11.11, 11, By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore child when she was past the age because she judged Him faithful who had promised. How many years would it have taken for you to say, I don't think this is going to happen? I was praying for no rain for this wedding yesterday. All week long. And I was already losing faith towards the end of the week. As we got closer and closer, and those numbers just kept stacking up and stacking up. And I was like, it's... Not going to happen. I'm going to keep praying for it, but it's just not going to happen. And it happened. There was rain after the wedding. It sprinkled. That was, I, I, I joke, I said that was our good luck, just being sprinkled on us, and then, and then the rain was held off. That's a week. 25 years she faithfully waited for this promise. Now, yes, she tried to fast track it. She tried to, to, to get it on her terms with Hagar. When God gives her the promise later, she laughs at it. She's not winning any awards, but she faithfully kept her eye on the promise and was patient throughout. Sarah is an example of faithful patience in the Lord. But I also want to think of another woman. And that is a woman that we just mentioned. Hagar. We don't oftentimes think about Hagar in the Bible, but Hagar is a tenacious example of endurance. As I mentioned, Sarah doesn't always get things right, and one awful, awful choice that Sarah makes has severe, painful consequences, and that is the choice to give her maidservant Hagar to Abram to bear him a child. Turn back to Genesis 16. In verses 1-4 through 4 it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, 
and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Now, it's doubtful to me that Hagar has any say in being the maidservant of Sarai. I don't believe that she filled out any sort of interview form to get this job. This was something that was probably pressed upon her outside of her will. But I'm 100% sure that she had no say in this relationship with Abram. This was completely concocted between Sarah and Abram. You're going to take her. She's going to be your wife. She's going to give you children. This is out of her hands. And immediately after becoming pregnant, we find this situation breed exactly what we would expect a situation like this to breed. Sarah becomes bitter. She becomes hateful. And, and she starts, they start stressing the relationship that she has with her husband, husband Abram. And Abram responds during this situation the way you would expect most husbands to respond. Happy wife, happy life. Honey, whatever it is you want to do, you go ahead and do it. You take care of that. And so she does. Verse 6 says that she deals harshly with Abram or with Hagar. And Hagar flees. I want you to think about that for a moment. She deals with her so harshly that this pregnant woman who who doesn't have anything, she's a maidservant, she says, it would be better for me to go out into the wilderness. I don't know what exactly she was doing, but I know it had to have been terrible to to convince a pregnant woman with, with very little hope of survival to say it would be better for me out there than in here. And that's where I want to pick back up with that happening in verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude." And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called... Be'er lahai roi, observe it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I want you to picture this. I, I do this. I don't know if you do. But this is something that I love to do when I read the Bible. I picture myself sitting in a movie theater watching this play out on a giant screen. I, I love to see these events as if I can see them happening in my mind's eye. And I picture, I picture Hagar returning back to Sarah. I picture her giving birth to, to, to Ishmael. And I picture this triumphantly. 
She has been, for lack of a better term, abused. Run out of camp. And yet she comes back and she's, oh, this is moments that says, you know what, you're not going to defeat me that easy. God saw me in the wilderness. God is seeing me. I'm coming back in here. I'm going to submit myself to your hand. And that's exactly what she does. I know this because as time passes, and we see Sarah getting the, the, the promise of her patience, Isaac is born. Again, Sarah goes through this time where Ishmael can't be here Hagar can't be here. Hey, Ishmael at that time, in, back over in chapter 21, he is, he is scoffing at, at, the, at the birth of Isaac. And so this, this again fills Sarah with anger and she wants to cast them out. And this time God speaks to Abraham and He says, listen to her. Listen to Sarah. Cast them out. And Hagar does exactly what the angel of the Lord instructed her to do all these years ago, about at this point 14 to 15 years ago, she submits herself under her hand, she takes the provisions, and she goes out into the wilderness. She leaves with very little hope of what that's going to mean. And we find her then in verse 16 of chapter 21 with this heart-wrenching moment. She has placed the boy under one of the shrubs, and she went and she sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot, for she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. She's without hope. She says, I've done everything I can. I've done everything I can to, to, to take care of this child and there's nothing left for me to do. And she puts him under the brush and she cries. In verse 17, God heard the voice of the lad. The angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. This woman has experienced so much. And now she's been drawn to this place where she says, I can see no other way out. We're going to die. And I don't know what else left for me to do. And what I love about the account of Hagar, what I love about her so much, is that in the eyes of most, she would be seen as the homewrecker. Now we know it's completely out of her hands. It's out of her control. She probably did not want this. But that is what she is. She's the other woman in this relationship. And yet despite that, she is exalted by God. She is vindicated by God. She is included in His Word for now until the end of time as an example of someone who would not quit. She would resolve herself to go back and serve those who are in authority over me. She would resolve herself to go and be indebted to this young child in trying to take care of him and, and provide for him the best that she could. And I love that about Hagar. I love the power that we see in her story, as short as it is, and as little attention that we give to it. And in just a moment, we're going to come back to it. But to keep things rolling along, I want to go on to one more. One more. We've seen examples of faithful patience and tenacious endurance. Now I want to look at an example of determined planning. And maybe you think to yourself, okay, patience, endurance, I get that. I get those. Those are biblical qualities. But planning... Is that a biblical quality of a mother? Yes. You bet it is. It's an important biblical quality of a mother. So who is Jochebed? 
Who is this that we're going to be talking about? Jochebed is the mother of Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. You won't find that in Exodus chapter 2, which details the birth of Moses. But if you flip over to Exodus chapter 6, in verse 20, it says, Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of life of Amram were 137. It's important to get the the pronunciations right in that, isn't it? The punctuation, that's what I'm trying to get. It's important to get that. Jochebed is the mother of Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. Now, given the fact that it mentions Aaron first, I'm of the assumption that Aaron was probably the older brother. So when we get back to Exodus chapter 2, we see Jochebed, who already we know has Miriam and likely already has Aaron. And she is living in very, very difficult times. Exodus 1 reveals that a new king has arisen in Egypt. A king that doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't remember how he interpreted the dreams of the Pharaoh, doesn't remember how he he saved them from the famine, doesn't remember that these Israelites were here and were living amongst them as a favor to Joseph. He's forgotten all of that. What he remembers is that this group of Israelites, these Hebrews, are getting larger by the minute. They're growing. And we have to do something about it. And so he gives this decree to to the midwives. He says, midwives, when the Hebrews give birth to a child, if it's a girl, that's okay. If it's a boy, you need to kill it. And you'll remember that they don't do that. They, they, they refuse to do that. And the answer for reason, the reason why is given to us in verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Now, completely sidebar from today's lesson. Do you want to know why we have problems with abortion today? Do you want to know why abortion is as prevalent today as it is? It has nothing to do with what side of the aisle you're on. Left, right, Democrat, Republican. It doesn't matter what kind of thinking you are, what millennial you come from. Whether you're a millennial or whether you're a baby boomer, it has nothing to do with that. The problem lies in a lack of the fear of God. These women would not take the lives of these children because they feared God. If we had a a fear of God today that said, I'm not concerned with the consequences of raising this child. I'm not afraid of that more than I am afraid of the fear of God. We would see a change in abortion. That's the reason they wouldn't do it then. And Pharaoh looks at that and he says, okay, plan B. They won't do it. We'll move this over to general population. If you see a Hebrew baby boy, you throw that thing in the river. I don't want him in my kingdom. This is the terrible, dreadful existence of Jochebed. She is raising a family at this time. And you, look, you, you think about that. Put yourself in that situation. And you look around at your loved ones, your family members, and you're saying, how, how terrible, what can I do? How can I help? And then you become pregnant. Jochebed's terrible, dreadful experience gets into nightmarish realms when she becomes pregnant with child. And that's where we find Exodus chapter 2, verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now, I'm reading from the New King James, and I thought that there had to have been a word that was added in there that was not going to be in all the, any of the other translations, and that was the word when. 
when she saw that he was a child. So I looked at as many translations as I could find. And that word is found in all of them. And what my first thought was, Moses had better be thankful that he wasn't born ugly. Because when she saw he was beautiful, she made these, these decisions to do this. Now we all know, we all know that mothers never see their children as ugly. They, they see they are born and they are beautiful. They have the exact same experience as Jochebed. But me, I'm going to confess to you, and I hope this doesn't offend anyone, I thought even my own children were ugly when they were first born. Now don't get me wrong. I see them over there. <sighs> don't get me wrong. When they were born, I was in awe of the awesome power of God in childbirth. I cried. I was fearful for the newfound responsibilities that I have as a father. And I also thought, these things kind of look like aliens. That doesn't look like me. Stop saying that looks like me. He doesn't have my eyes. I don't know what that is. Now granted, that didn't last very long. But from the moment they were born, Holly knew these are perfect. These are beautiful. These are mine. This is Jochebed. She looks at this child and she says, this is beautiful. This is my beautiful boy. And the world out there, the world out there wants to kill it. And I've got to do something about that. I've got to plan for that. And so what does she do? She hides him. She hides him from the world that wants to kill him. And when it becomes time, she does this just heartbreaking thing, building this basket, building this little ark, putting him in it, and sending him down the Nile. That was her plan. And God blesses her plan. Because not only does she spare Moses' life, but I want you to think about this. She gets to raise Moses while everyone around her is getting their children plucked from their hands. Everyone around her is experiencing such heartbreak. She gets to not only raise him, she doesn't have to hide anymore. She gets to openly raise Moses because everyone knows she's raising the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. So she gets to raise her child, but not only does she spare him and get to raise him, she spares Israel. She spares Israel from, from years of slavery because Moses is going to become the leader who follows God and draws the people out of slavery and closer to Him than they've been in some 400 years. What we see in Sarah, Hagar, and Jochebed are awesome, awesome examples of mothers in God's words. And I hope you've been paying attention to them because we learn so much from them. There's so many things that we can apply from them. And I want to start just talking to the mothers for a moment in this room. I know it can be hard to be patient. I know it can be so hard because you want to do what is best for your children and you want your children to do what is best and what is right. And you want that right now. And sometimes, you know, that gets translated into acting not out of patience, but out of fear and out of anger and out of emotion instead of trust. We talked about that last Sunday. We talked about disciplining our children when we're angry. We talked about the fact that sometimes we just give up disciplining because it's like I've been doing this for so long and they're not changing. I've spanked them till my hand hurts. I've put them in timeout and they get up and they just do the same thing again. I'm just so tired of that. We have to be patient. So we talked about, we talked count to three, don't give up. We have to do these things. But we also need to see this in another light, not just in discipline. We need to see another great problem in our children's lives, and that is their need 
for the blood of Christ. We have to see that. But that brings up another problem. That brings up the fact that we have to be patient in that as well. Don't be afraid to endure nights of sleeplessness. Don't be ashamed of the weeping prayers of of fear and even exasperation because you want them to do what is right before God, but you want them to do what is right before God. We're not trying to raise disciples of ourselves. We're trying to raise disciples of Christ. And so be patient and endure. And in fact, here's what I want you to do. I want you to flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I want you to read that with me. And I want you to read it in light of motherhood. I charge you, Therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you... Be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now I know, no one needs to come up and tell me after services, I know the context of that passage. I know Paul is talking to Timothy. I know Paul is talking to an evangelist. But can you imagine Paul giving any other advice to to a mother who comes and says, I'm just, I don't know what else to do. I've been trying, uh, and it's hard. And I imagine Paul saying, hang in there. Preach the Word. Tell your children about God. Spend time in His Word with them. And be ready when it's popular, and be ready when it's not popular to stand for the truth and convince them. Mothers, convince your children of the things that you are convinced about. Which also means that you need to be convinced about God. You need to be convinced about His Word. We need to be sure on that. We need to be ready to rebuke them. We need to be ready to build them up. And he says, do it with patience and teaching. It's going to take time. So what you have to do is you have to endure afflictions. There's going to be times where this is hard and you take those hardships and you be patient in God and you determine and you plan that my children are going to be saved from this world because just like Jochebed, you've looked at them and you said they are beautiful, but the world wants to kill them spiritually. The world wants to strip them away from God. Strip them away from His influences. And so what do you do? You hide them. Hide them for as long as you can. Now, We dealt with this when we began to homeschool. I want to say right up front, this is 100% not a push for homeschool. I was public schooled. I was raised in the public school. That is probably a better push for homeschool than what I'm about to say. Look at how I turned out. We decided to homeschool, and we had several loving people come up to us and say, don't you know they're going to experience those things one day? They're going to go to high school, aren't they? They're going to go to college, aren't they? They're going to see sex. They're going to see drugs. They're going to see these things. Don't you know that all you're doing by keeping them from that is not preparing them for that? And I never understood that thought mentality. I never understood it because no, I'm, I'm not wanting them 
to experience those things. Yes, I am wanting to prepare them and to teach them for how to do that. But we, we look at those things and we, we think, yeah, we, we don't want them to, to experience that, but we, we want to get a little bit of taste of it so they know what to expect. Why don't we look at it like that with something like skydiving? You say, you know what, oh, that one day they may try that. So you know what, kids, why don't you all go ahead and get on this plane, fly up 10,000 feet, we're going to strap a, a parachute on you, we're going to push you out because we want you to get a taste of what it's going to be like when you get older. We don't do that with anything else. It doesn't make sense. We need to try and hide them as best we can. I try to hide my boys, even though they're homeschooled. I know that they have friends in their co-op. They have friends in their family. They have friends around that I'm concerned about. And I look at that and we think about that. How can we protect them? And you know, we tend to look at it and go, okay, we're talking about things like, like sex and drugs. But what if we would take you know, these, these sins that we put way up here and we would put the ones down here and raise them to that same status? What would we say if when we're hiding our children, we're hiding them from foul language? There's movies that we don't take our boys to. There's movies that we do and we say, all right, we're going to have to have a conversation at the beginning and at the end of this movie about some of the things that they're going to hear. But there's other movies we say, no, I know it's popular. I know you want to see it. There's things, there's themes, there's words that we're just not going to allow you to hear because we are hiding you from that at the best we can to protect you. What if we would look at how people mistreat God's, God's Word? How people mistreat God's name? We'd say we want to hide you from that. How people mistreat the assemblies of His people. So mothers, I beg you, know that the years that you have right now, these are the years where they need your example. These are the years where they need your influence. Use it while you can. Study with them. Pray with them. Get them involved with people from the church. You know, whenever, whenever I talk about you know, bringing our kids to services, it's not because I think I've checked a list off. Oh, I'm, I'm going to show up in heaven and be that dad that says, oh, you brought your kids to church. No, it's because I know that the people here want to go to heaven, and I know that they want my children to go to heaven. And I want them around people like that. So let's make decisions to follow the great examples of, of patience and endurance and planning for our children that we've seen today. Men, we need to stop looking at the second Sunday of May as Mother's Day. Mother's Day is every day. You've seen We've looked at three examples of women and how hard it is to be a mother. It's difficult. We need to look to our wives and realize that hasn't changed in 4,000 to however many years. That's still the same today. They need to know every day that we appreciate them. They need to know every day that we see their fears. Their fears are not uncalled for. Their fears are not ignored by us. We see them. We love them for that. We want to try and help them. If there are complaints, we want to listen. We're ready to be the post that you come and take that out on. And we're going to be thankful. Not only for that opportunity, but for the work that they do. We need to show them our love. We need to show them our support. And we need to show them that we are praying for them. And we need to do these things often. And children. Children, you need to think about this really, really well. Your mothers love you very, very much. That is evidenced to all of us how much your mothers love you.
They have sacrificed so much in their lives to give you the comfort and the peace that you enjoy and you probably don't even know what you're missing out on. So honor your mothers, not just by giving them flowers or a card or a gift. If you've done that today, good for you guys. But that's not the way that we're going to honor our mothers. We're going to honor our mothers by giving them the best thing we can give them. We're going to give them our obedience. When you obey your mom by walking beside them in the grocery store instead of ripping and running up the aisles and screaming and yelling, when you hold the door for her and you hold the door for other people, when you say kind things to her and you say kind things to other people, you know what's going to happen in those moments. They're going to look at you guys and they're going to smile and they're going to say, you are such well-behaved kids. that You're just so cute. I want to take you home with me. You're amazing. And they're probably not going to say a single word to your mom. But before they walk away, they're going to look at her. And they're going to smile. And they're going to think in their heart, thank you for doing your best to raise someone different from all of the wildness in this world. That's the gift you're giving your mother. That you're going to be different. And the world sees that. And they give their thanks and their praise to your mom because of your obedience. Before we close, I want to jump back real quick to Hagar. You remember in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, she has this interesting name she gives to God. You are the God who sees. Even asking the question, have I seen Him who sees me? And then later in her life, in Genesis 21, 16, and 17, we find God listening to her. Specifically listening to the cries of her son, but He hears her and He comes to her in her distress. And in both of these cases, what does God do? He provides. He sees her in her distress and He provides. He hears her in her distress and He provides. That is the God that we serve. That God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And He has not changed. Whenever you turn over to, first, or to John chapter 1, you see Jesus being introduced to a man named Nathaniel. And as He talks to them, Nathaniel gets this funny feeling. He says, how do you know Me? How do you know who I am? And Jesus' response to him is, I saw you while you were by the fig tree. He wasn't there, but He saw Him. Whenever we get to Acts, we find this account in Acts chapter 10 of Cornelius. He's given a vision of an angel of God and he says to the angel, what do you want? And his response is, your prayers and your alms have come before God as a memorial. This has not changed from the Old Testament to now. God still sees us. God still hears us. And God is still providing. Romans chapter 5, verses 6-11 through says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Do you know today 
that your sin has separated you from your God? Do you know today that because of His love and the blood of His Son, you can be redeemed back, you can be brought back into a relationship with Him? And do you believe today that the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to do that? Powerful enough because it is not the blood of just a man. It's a blood of the Son of the living God. If you believe that, if you know that, and you are willing to turn away from that sin that is separated from Him, confess your belief in Him, and be buried with Him in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, God is just and faithful to not only forgive, but to add you to His number. That's our desire here at Lake Street to help build one another and others up to a faithful relationship with God. And we would love to do that and assist you in that today if you would only let it be known. If we can help, come forward as we stand and as we sing.